Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. We say that by 2020, the world economy will have entered the solar age. We'll have basically left the fossil fuel era behind. We're just showing is that this is an unstoppable kind of uh, transition. I'm very pleased to introduce Hazel Henderson. Hazel is a renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, author and consultant, and has been at the forefront of thinking about sustainable development over several decades. Much of her work relates to the creation of interdisciplinary economic and political theory, integrating environmental and social concerns. In 2005, Henderson started Ethical Markets Media to distribute information on green investing, technology and sustainable development. She's the author of several books, including most recently, Mapping the Global Transition to the Solar Age. Thank you very much, Hazel, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing your views and perspectives on the Sustainability Agenda and getting a sense of how you see it today, how it's changed over the many decades that you've been writing and talking about sustainability in various forms and maybe look forward as a futurist to see a little bit what might be in store next. All right. Yes, very much so. Well, uh, you know, I really began to dig into all of this uh, during the six years I was a a science policy wonk in in Washington at the Office of Technology Assessment and the National Academy of Sciences and so on. And um, back then, uh, I I sort of saw firsthand what I uh, began calling the politics of the solar age. And and what I meant by that, and that became the title of a book I wrote in 1981 after I had done that six years and seen that politics up close. And, And what it really was, as far as I saw it, was um, all of the incumbent fossilized sectors of the U.S. economy um, that had sort of cognitively captured uh, the politicians and the regulatory agencies and the subsidies and the tax policy and were really blocking the emergence of the next um, phase of what you might call human social evolution, which is shifting, from my point of view, you know, from uh, the energy based on fossil fuels to renewable energy, solar, wind, um, radical kind of energy efficiency, and um, all of the other uh, wave-bound hydro kind of uh, technologies. So I saw that up close. And um, one of the, the things I like to uh, recount is that on one of the first advisory meetings we had in the U.S. Congress, um, where um, I was incidentally not only the only woman, but the only non-Nobel Prize winner, <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty daunting. <laughs> and I was there with the Secretary of Defense and uh, the head of the general accounting office and all of these big shots, you know, and a couple of corporate presidents, the president of Dow Chemical and um, 
at the time and Texas Instruments and all that. And uh, one of the members of our um, uh, Technology Assessment Advisory Council uh, later went on to become the chief administrator of NASA, uh, uh, Jim Fletcher. And he told us all, and remember, this is 1975, and he said that if uh, the U.S. had decided over the past uh, uh, to uh, subsidize fossil, uh, to subsidize solar energy, wind, renewables, energy efficiency, etc., to the same extent that uh, they had already subsidized fossil fuels and nuclear power, that the U.S. society would have been entirely run on renewable energy by 1975. Uh, And that kind of just blew me away and got me onto sort of researching this whole thing. Uh, Could that really be that the power of the accumulation of the 19th and 20th century industries uh, that that now sort of had this fossilized grip on the economy and managed to shoot down, you know, all of the budding technologies uh, that could lead us to this transition. So fast forward, and um, the year 2015, to me, was the year when the inflection point was uh, was reached and where we finally did see this global transition to low carbon, cleaner, greener, more knowledge rich uh, economies uh, began to come into being. And I think the forcing function was really the two United Nations uh, conferences uh, ratifying, as 195 member countries did, they ratified the Sustainable Development Goals. And also then there was the meeting in December in Paris that uh, ratified uh, COP21 and those INDCs, you know, the Intentional National Plans for Shifting um, their resources and investments towards uh, the green sectors. And so it, that speeded everything up in a very interesting way. I mean, I remember in January of this year, there was a United Nations-sponsored conference of um, the investors um, representing about $13 trillion uh, dollars U.S. of uh, pension fund assets that met there at the U.N. with um, Michael Bloomberg and um, a lot of the people who are on our advisory board uh, who uh, like series um, and the green investment uh, groups and the principles of responsible investing um, which uh, was founded by the UN 10 years ago, which our company is a signatory member. And there they were uh, really talking about now, okay, now is the time to actually shift those stranded investments that our friends at Carbon Tracker have been uh, talking about and writing about and shift them now 
um, take whatever losses we have to take and start shifting them into the green technology sectors. And the, the way we have been mapping all of this global transition process, um, it particularly related to energy is with our green transition scoreboard. And uh, we started this in, uh, in, for Copenhagen in 2009. And uh, if you remember, leading up to that, a lot of people, including us, thought, oh, gosh, it's going to be a train wreck, you know, because the Kyoto Protocol had put everybody into this strange mindset of naming, blaming, and shaming and dividing the world up into tier one and tier two nations, you know, the industrialized nations versus the developing nations of the South. A recipe for failure, of course. And what happened, uh, as you know, uh, out of that uh, um, Copenhagen meeting was that they left on the table uh, the things that they could have all agreed about. And that was okay, we're all going to have to shift to low-carbon economies. And so our Green Transition Scoreboard was the first attempt to highlight the fact that there was already an enormous uh, amount of, of investing going on in the private sector. And we wanted to kind of um, shame the government uh, officials who were arguing about millions and billions. And we added up and presented the fact that there was already 1.1 trillion, uh, no, 1.2 trillion of those assets um, in green sectors worldwide um, without any public money at all. And since then, we update that twice a year. And our current number, uh, again, cumulatively since then is now 7.1 trillion. That's U.S. And so, you know, what we're just showing is that this is an unstoppable kind of uh, transition. And, of course, as we know, uh, all of these transitions are now accelerating because of the amount of global interactivity that there is. You know, as we created all these globe-girdling technologies and jets and satellites and fiber optic cables and uh, the Internet and all that, what it does is accelerate the pace of the change. And we all sort of feel it now. So um, we've been mapping in the last couple of months uh, these kind of activities like that meeting at the UN. And for example, uh, I was on a webinar the last couple of days with our colleagues at the UN Principles of Responsible Investing. And here they are. They um, are mostly the world's pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, and they represent 59 trillion of assets under management. And they have all of these fine principles of responsible investing. But for the last 10 years, uh, they haven't been able to, to move very much because um, so many of them are the, the, the big old dinosaurs themselves invested in all of these uh, stranded fossil fuel assets, trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, shift and very, very hard. And suddenly... Because of the two uh, big national 
international conferences last year, suddenly they are now saying, well, my gosh, don't we have to have another principle that we have to add saying that now we actually do have to support and implement the UN's um, Sustainable Development Goals. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) What's at stake here, Hazel? I mean, how bad are things? Well, uh, I think that we have to move with all deliberate speed. You know, we know, in fact, when when I was at the Office of Technology Assessment, we already knew. I mean, I knew Al Gore very well back in those days. He was a senator. And uh, we knew very well about the carbon loading of the atmosphere. And we knew very well that the first signs of uh, climate change and global warming would be crazy weather everywhere. And I remember in all of my travels around the world, you know, giving talks in many, many countries, I would always ask a question, what's the weather been like here? And it began to be, uh, you know, a sort of informal indicator for me. People would say, well, you know, we really had had some strange, you know, things we've never seen before, you know, whether it's floods or droughts or whatever. And of course, now that's getting to the point where, everybody is beginning to see this in the daily news. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You talked about the movement of investors and also COP21 with clearly the the signatories, governments. How important are governments, do you think, generally in, you know, moving the sustainability agenda forward? And I guess it's a big topic, but how well are governments doing? Well, um, you know, of course, there's a tremendously mixed bag. But once governments do um, set a global agenda like they did last year with those two agreements, then it begins to trickle down very rapidly. I mean, for example, in The Economist, this current issue, you'll find a full page ad where the six largest advertising agencies in the world have publicly committed to support and promote the Sustainable Development Goals. Yes, I saw that. Yes, yeah. Good yeah. Lord, you know? And so, you see, that's the kind of forcing function that, that a concerted government agreement, and that's why the UN has always been so important. I've worked with the UN in many ways for many years, uh, mostly because it is the only global norm setter that we have and the only global way of convening all of the parties. And of course, you know, it could be reformed. It would be wonderful to implement a lot of reforms. But right now, if the UN weren't there, it would have to be invented. Um, And then you've got um, laggard governments like our own here in the US. And um, even though uh, President Obama has tried very, very hard and finally did come to that good meeting of the minds, with President Xi in China um, at the meeting in December in Paris, um, it, it's still there. There are still about seventy members of the U.S. Congress who are still denying that climate change is real. And so, uh, in this country, um, we have a terrible problem of public education. And, you know, the founder of this country uh, always said, uh, the the founders always said that if you were going to have universal suffrage and um, have the thing run as a democracy, you have to inform the consent 
of the electorate. And we've done a pretty lousy job in this country. I mean, we've got elite universities and all of that, but the public education has been a woefully inadequate, um, underfunded, and uh, we have um, an enormous number, uh, up to 20% of U.S. adults are actually illiterate. And so that that's part uh, partly accounts for what we're seeing at the moment, you know, with um, the, the, the crazy uh, electoral politics we have uh, and the, the followers of Donald Trump. You know, yes, they have a lot of things to be angry about. They were left out of this narrow model of globalization, which was cooked up by Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s, you know, the Big Bang. Yes, they got left out of all of that and are naturally angry. And a lot of them, of course, um, accounted for uh, Bernie Sanders' success. But, you know, it's much easier to, um, to, to kind of diagnose the problem, but it's very much harder to prescribe. And that's what we don't have at the moment. We don't have any really good public debate. I think that Hillary Clinton and Obama knew very much what uh, a lot of the prescriptions were. But, of course, to get them into the public media, uh, which are all governed by commercial and entertainment standards, is very hard. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You mentioned the commercial imperative or the commercial agenda, I guess, of, of corporations. And it seems that sustainability is moving in a big way in corporate life from where it may have been more of a philanthropic or CSR type initiative to one which is much more integrated in companies, not just about cost savings, which can be substantial, but also in terms of growth opportunities in a number of companies and, and a growing number of companies. The business case seems to be established or more established, there's more research about that. How do you see the role of of corporations and how are they doing? Well, um, let's start with acknowledging that uh, corporations are puppets of finance, most of them, most of big companies. And uh, they've constantly got one eye on the security analysts and, you know, and uh, what's the guidance on their stock price for the next quarter and all that kind of thing. And, um, and at the moment, it's the entire um, uh, economic paradigm um, uh, that uh, is one of the problems because you've got the whole financial community and what they learned at the Harvard Business School and all of that. Uh, you know, the GDP measured economic growth model, the textbooks that allow the quote externalizing of all those costs that we want to pass on to the taxpayers and future generations and hide in the environment. So that model is still very much in operation in mainstream global finance. And so companies um, have had to be bucking that um, problem. And so that's why our company, Ethical Markets Media, um, we have spent the last uh, 11 years really disrupting uh, traditional finance. We, We consider that the a retraining of asset managers and the reforming of the structure of what I call the global financial casino um, is really job one. Because if you don't change the paradigm there, um, it's always very hard at the corporate level 
uh, to get recognized for what you're doing, even if you're saving money. Quite often, you know, when they put in the most basic energy efficiency, uh, they don't get recognized in the stock price even for doing that. So what we did, what we do is we promulgate standards, higher standards. You you could say really that um, we are uh, an intellectual products kind of company and uh, we create standards uh, for this higher level of performance and then propagate them through our various media outlets and our networks and the fact that our global TV show is uh, uh, basically goes out to um, public libraries and business schools and colleges all over the world. So we've been doing that for the last 11 years and right Right now, um, I'm working with the UN Inquiry on Design of Sustainable Finance. It's been going for about two years, and we're now having another meeting up in New York in a couple of weeks on looking at the disruption of finance with all of these little fintech companies. And so it's very hopeful now that we actually can get some much faster reforms in finance because they're all absolutely terrified that uh, these um, electronic platforms that can create barter clubs and swapping and um, all kinds of transacting and, uh, you know, uh, without um, using money. You know, they're just pure information-based exchange, whether it's crowdfunding or peer-to-peer lending or all of this kind of thing. So uh, this is sort of a double-edged sword, and it's going to have to be steered very carefully. But it is providing the old financial centers with a huge wake-up call um, that we now have to steer into a better direction. And on the corporate level, we have uh, been working with all of the socially responsible investing uh, firms. And I was an advisor to the Calvert Group uh, for over 20 years, you know, developing the screens. Um, and all of those things help companies Uh, And then we got together with the Biomimicry Institute a few years ago and developed a new set of principles of what we called ethical biomimicry uh, finance. And we trademark uh, all of our principles and standards because this is the way you can inject them into the marketplace. The, the, The asset managers can license them and put them on their Bloomberg screen, you know. So it's it's really a way of um, educating that's more efficient than writing papers or giving speeches or trying to wave your arms around and entreat them to do things better. Yes, you know, yes. You know, create a product they can buy. Or yes. License, you know? Well, it's, so, in, it's interesting that you say that. I know that Morningstar has, you know, created some sustainability indices. There does seem to be quite a lot happening. I mean, I know that one of the major obstacles for a long time has been this idea of the fiduciary responsibility of corporations to maximize profits and this idea. And I know that Robert Eccles in, in the United States has clearly undermined that myth, or describes it as a myth at least. And I, I spoke to yes. John Kay recently, who talked about that in the UK as well, being overstated. And there does seem to be other initiatives now. I saw a piece of somebody saying that, you know, this elusive alpha 
is investor investment managers are supposed to be uh, getting or paid to get in many cases that they aren't but that ESG factors are a source can be a source of alpha clearly a lot happening but you know what would it look like when it, this had really changed when when you know responsible investing was the norm yeah well what we have in our principles of ethical biomimicry finance is a lot of uh, examples of companies that we think are compliant with that i mean that is kind of the gold standard that's the bench the final benchmark is biomimicry compliant what does that mean sorry hazel uh, biomimicry simply means uh, doing things um the way nature does so that there is no waste, you know, that nature has a whole set of principles which are fairly well articulated in our standards. And uh, what we are finding is that um, our friends at the Biomimicry Institute, and they have a for-profit consulting firm now called B3.8, which means 3.8 billion years of evolution of life on this planet, you know? And so why not copy the successful evolution uh, that nature has already done? So what they do is that they go into companies and they go through all of their products and their production processes and tell them which products um, are biomimicry compliant and therefore sustainable and which ones uh, they can um, they can upgrade um, how they can up- upgrade their product line and which which um, products they better dump because they never can be sustainable and the first example of the company a company that uh, they went into very early 10 15 years ago was interface carpet yes yeah and uh ray anderson whom i knew also a wonderful guy um he uh, totally got it and uh when they said well look you know you you're not uh, selling carpets you're in the floor covering business and so, you know, why don't you use this modularized approach? And then in X number of years, you'll never have to uh, use another drop of virgin oil taken out of the ground. It'll all be recycled. And so that company is still on the path to do that. And um, B3.8, in which I'm a lead investor, I have to say for full disclosure, <laughs> is um it's been invest has been consulting with Natura and with all kinds of companies, um, and also cities on redesigning cities, ecological cities, and uh, buildings using uh, nature's models. And they this is really catching on now. And there's a lot of people in uh, in these companies who think that uh, this is is really the spearhead of innovation is biomimicry. How does technology and disruptive technology fit in? Because, you know, you do hear and, you know, and I've spoken to people who are in, you know, investing and putting substantial resources into new technologies that they believe will create a more sustainable world that will help with social innovation and things like that. Does technology, can you map that onto the biomimicry model? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, um, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's being applied to aircraft and to the design of, um, of, of vehicles. Uh, you know, all of these designs come from nature. 
And, you know, um, I mean, if you if you go on that side, it'll absolutely blow your mind. <laughs> you know, when you look at the I mean, the, the different applications um, where you design technologies to reduce drag, um, you know, to be radically um, efficient. Those, those are, are all, you know, part of uh, all those designs come from nature. And, and to give you another example, you know, one of the standards that we've created in the advertising uh, and media world is called the Ethic Mark Awards for advertising that uplifts the human spirit and society. And when we started that over 10 years ago, everybody said, oh, gosh, you know, that's really kind of mushy. And instead, what we find now is uh, you can look at um, the last year's winners. Um, we had two incredible advertising campaigns. We, we always uh, have them in a nonprofit category. And last year, the nonprofit category was from Pakistan. And the for-profit category was from Cambodia. And um, the year before, and, and you can watch it if you go to ethicmark.org, you can watch these three-minute campaigns. And we always present these uh, uh, campaigns at the Socially Responsible Business Conference called SRI, which is held every year. Uh, in Colorado. And just to give you another example about technology and these kinds of things which show up um, through um, this advertising medium, uh, the ninth annual awards, uh, we had um, our nonprofit award winner was the Technical University of Peru in Lima. And this was a series of billboards all along the highway in their Plano Alto uh, area where there's almost no rain. And uh, these particular billboards advertising the technical university um, were, of course, reverse osmosis machines. And what they do is to pick up the morning mist and the evening mist and precipitate it down into big vats. And all the villages along that highway get their fresh water from these um, billboards. So this is kind of completely new kind of thinking for most companies. Yeah, so it's, it's very, very exciting stuff. I mean, like um, one company that I'm uh, an investor in, which is a, um, a biomimicry compliant company, and we add the ethics because you see that everybody misunderstood Charles Darwin, you know, that Darwin never invented that awful phrase, the survival of the fittest. As you know, that was Herbert Spencer writing in the Economist magazine. And um, so we added ethical because uh, we have to dispel that whole idea that nature is red in tooth and claw. You know, actually, nature, nature co-evolves, species all co-evolve. <clears throat> and cooperation is more the model of nature than competition. So, uh, so that's why we call it ethical biomimicry finance. And the one, this one company, for example, um, Natcore, um, is traded on the small uh, stock exchange in Toronto, and they have produced a coating. Um, a very dense black coating that you can put on any kind of solar panel, which will double the number of photons that it can capture because it's black, right? 
And so, so I, I checked with our biomimicry scientific experts and said, well, look, we've checked out the ethics of this company, but look, what about, uh, and they're, you know, they're very ethical. They have very good patents from the uh, NREL in uh, Colorado, the government renewable energy agency. Um, but is it really uh, safe, th- this coating? Because most coatings, you know, have to uh, are highly toxic. They have to be put on with some kind of a etching um, method. And yeah, these coatings are completely biodegradable and uh, non-toxic, applied at room temperature, um, no toxic uh, etching. Uh, and so those are the kind of companies you look for. We have lots of them. And of course, many of them, I have to say, are cooperatives, not or or employee-owned, not necessarily regular for-profit, you know. Yes, yes. I mean, it seems like there are, you know, on many dimensions, there's all this progress being made. But at the heart of the, the issue, there is economic globalization, which is clearly causing all kinds of problems or problems which are manifesting now that have been there probably brewing for some time. You know, how can this sustainability coexist with this uh, economic globalization model today? And I just wonder how fragile is the progress that's been made? We saw with the crash in 2008, you know, suddenly priorities change very quickly. Yes. Well, the thing is that um, uh, the way we look at things around here is that breakdowns drive breakthroughs. And in a way, uh, parts of the financial system clearly broke down and have not yet been fixed. I mean, the financial system is still very fragile. And that's because there's enormous shift going on. Um, and I can I just did a, a paper on well, I did an editorial on that about, you know, the fact that central bankers don't have any more tools. And um, we have to rely now on fiscal Um, investments or else they're going to have to go to what's now being discussed as helicopter money (laughs) because uh, uh, within the old system uh, but of course the other thing is that you can have quantitative easing the old style you know which central banks have been doing which is bailing out all the mistakes of the past um, or you can do what we call around here qualitative easing which is more like investing in uh, green infrastructure and uh, better education and healthcare and future. It's interesting you say that because Naomi Klein's one of her book about the shock doctrine, you know, and there are others who say the same thing that, you know, each time there's a crisis, actually, what happens is that the system of economic globalization becomes even more intractable and more intense. And, you know, it's used as, you know, for example, we've seen in Europe a wave of austerity, we've seen a wave of austerity in the UK. So actually, some people would argue that each time there's a crash that it goes the opposite way. Well, that, that's true, but there's both things going on. And what I think right now uh, is that with the, uh, at least with the research that we do, uh, what we have been saying with the Green Transition Scoreboard, that uh, all of these green technologies now are scaling. And um, we have mapped, uh, there's about a trillion dollars has gone into these green sectors every year, and we expect that to continue. And of course, what it's doing is reducing the price and they're scaling. And as the volume goes up, 
the prices go down. And so now you have wind power is really much cheaper than any other form of electricity generation. And of course, there, there still are subsidies that are pushing it the wrong way. But even with the subsidies still in place to fossil fuels, um, it's now cheaper to um, it, to install uh, renewable uh, generated electricity. And of course, nuclear power, there's absolutely no way, you know. I mean, particularly when you look at developing countries, that, that that nobody can afford nuclear power. Look what's happening in Britain with this Hinkley Point thing. You know, there's just no way anybody's going to invest in that, uh, even though they still have this um, law that says that the government has to accept responsibility for um, accidents and the dangers, you know, I mean, if you even without taking away those huge subsidies that they've enjoyed all along, uh, nobody um, expects to have uh, new nuclear power. So that part of the market is working pretty well. Now, there, there are other parts where uh, the old system is so entrenched that it's still driving us in the wrong direction. But of course, what happens is you drive a system in the wrong direction like austerity, which is just a totally ridiculous response to um, what happened in 2008, you know, to prevent the bondholders having to take a hit. You know, instead, um, these dumb governments, you know, took on the debt and then tried to squeeze it out of their citizens. You know, you can't get away with that if it's any kind of democracy. And so you have, you know, if they don't... Uh, change the, the, the rules, um, you're going to have more breakups like what's happening today in Italy and what's been happening in Greece. And, uh, you know, the, the, it, it can't, uh, it, uh, I think even George Osborne now wanted an excuse to say he's not going to do austerity anymore. Yes, that's fascinating. I'm just wondering the la one last area, maybe, which is to do with we haven't discussed, which is the consumer, <laughs> which is, well, the consumer is just one way of saying you know, the man in the street or, you know, people power individuals. And, you know, one of the trends that's definitely been apparent is, you know, people do want to buy uh, sustainable products. There's been a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, there's been greenwashing of various forms or bad communication. Um, how important is that? And you talked about before, you know, the American founding fathers and education being uh, understanding sustainability yeah. and having clarity about what is and what is not sustainable. Can you talk just a little bit about the potential or for the man in the street and, and the impact that they will have could have on the sustainability agenda? Yeah, well, really, that was the reason that we set up these advertising awards, because really advertising drives so much of the content of commercial media. And a lot of that greenwashing misleads consumers, um, and, and not just in this country, but now all over the world. And so we were trying to set a higher bar, you know, for the advertising profession. I mean, this is about $570 billion a year spent on this kind of consumer miseducation. And so we felt that this was a good way to, you know, to begin taking a look at that. But we are not a retail organization. And the first uh, standard that we have just, well, we created about a year ago, which addresses the consumer market, is our standard called Ethic Mark Gems. 
And if you go to Epic Mark Gems, all one word, uh, the standard certifies only gems, diamonds, rubies, whatever, that are not mined from the earth. And that is because now uh, the scientific uh, creation of uh, these gems that are absolutely chemically indistinguishable from diamonds and rubies and sapphires or whatever um, are available retail, uh, you know, all over the world, as well as, of course, industrial diamonds, which have been manufactured for years and years. So we thought, OK, here's one we can take on right now. And that is to say it's time to shut down all global gem mining that it's basically not only the conflict diamonds and the hundreds of people who die every year in these terrible mines, but the pollution that they cause of people's water supply. And I mean, just, just, it's just a horror story wherever there is this kind of mining in the world. And now it's totally unnecessary and obsolete. But it's a cartel, as, as you know, the diamond cartel, um, with vastly over-inflated uh, prices. And so we thought, well, what we can do now is encourage this new disruptive market, which um, is now retailing these beautiful uh, stones, particularly attractive to millennials, you know, who can't afford um, the uh, cartel uh, mined diamonds. Uh, and so basically, um, there's a piece in The Economist this week that just blew my mind. You know, it just shows how fast um, the change takes place. And they, they were saying that um, this now, um, the mine gems now are being devalued. And, um, and we've got a lot of that evidence on our site. If you want to go to that site, it's just ethicmarkgems.com. And uh, I have an article there called Beyond Bloodstained Gems, New Science and Standards. So, so you can change consumer tastes very quickly um, in this kind of media-saturated uh, global system. I mean, if you remember how it was only a short time ago that people, um, corporate executives would buy their wives, you know, their trophy wives, a, a trophy fur coat um, and trophy diamonds and all of that. And now that's very unfashionable. You know, nobody wants to wear a coat made of the skins of dead animals, you know, it's very passe. <laughs> so why did the, here's a point that just to sort of wrap this up from my point of view is that what we have to remember is that in nature, these changes, these evolutionary changes never happen in a very orderly progression. They happen in what's called step functions, punctuated equilibrium functions. And so that means that like one minute um, you have a global diamond trade and blah, blah, blah. And in a very short time, the entire system has changed. And that's because those step functions are now happening in our social systems all across. I mean, you know, the one we're looking at right now is the disruption of finance. And I have a paper coming out on fintech, good and bad news for sustainable finance, which I haven't gotten published. I'm Love some ideas. I've where where to best to publish it, but <laughs> so 
So that's the, that's the model that, that we use is the step function model. Very interesting. I'd last final, I did say it was the final question, but just looking forward then, I mean, what kind of time frame do you think about this in and, and expect to see really substantial change? As you've mentioned, things are, have been accelerating and there's, you know, on, on many different dimensions. Well, we actually, in the Green Transition Scoreboard, that you can find the, uh, that on our site, um, we uh, pretty much uh, say that if these investments, these private investments, forget about governments, they're jumping on board now with green bonds, so they're getting oversubscribed and all of that. But we're just talking private investment. If that goes on at roughly a trillion dollars a year, um, uh, as it has been for the past 10 years, we say that by 2020, um, the world economy will have entered the solar age. We're basically left the fossil fuel era behind, just as we went from whale oil, you know, to petroleum. Very optimistic vision. And it's certainly a time frame that we can think about and all play our part. So thank you very much, Hazel, for talking to me today and to the Sustainability Agenda uh, podcast. It's been uh, very interesting to hear your views and a lot of rich material there. And I wish you the very best with ethical markets and, and all of the initiatives that you're involved in. And thanks very much. Thanks very much, Bernal. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.